the Slaughter in May podcast. Hello, and welcome to today's Slaughter in May podcast on shareholder activism. I'm Filippo De Falco, a partner in the corporate team here at Slaughter in May. And I'm Claire Jackson, also a partner in the corporate team. So in today's podcast, we'll be looking at activism trends that emerged over the course of 2020, and we'll do some horizon scanning to consider whether some of these trends are going to continue over into 2021. We'll end with some tips for companies who are seeking to defend themselves against activist shareholders. So let's start, Claire. 2020, clearly a roller coaster year on many fronts, politics, public health, sports, you name it. Was that true for activism? And yes, and we probably the understatement of the year that it was definitely quite a year. But in activism terms, from the outset of 2020, it looked as though we were in for another year of record levels of activism. And that was building on the lofty heights of 2018 and 2019 too. So in January and February, we saw a surge, both in terms of the number of campaigns and the capital deployed across Europe. And again, the UK was the most targeted country. But then the pandemic struck and obviously upended many things. That also included the strategies of the activists who effectively had the wind taken out of their sails at that point. And despite their reputation, the activists were pretty self-aware and um, feared being criticised for being opportunistic and self-serving in the time of crisis. And so we saw that they largely took a pretty realistic view recognising that boards were focused rightly on the day-to-day operations, shoring up balance sheets, and in some cases, fighting for the company's survival. And so crucially, they knew that any wrongly timed campaign would likely only harm their interests. Yes, that's, that's something that I certainly found interest. And I remember at the time, a good example of this was, was Ed Branson's campaign against Barclays. So of course, you'll remember he he had been campaigning against Barclays for a good 12 to 18 months. He first bought a stake through derivatives of up to 5%, used it to requisition a general meeting, tried to appoint himself to the board um, and, and lost that resolution resoundingly. But that didn't stop him. And he continued to be vocal against Barclays, criticising its strategy and ultimately urging Barclays to withdraw its support for, for Jess Staley, its CEO. So everybody expected him to to continue and to continue agitating for him to be voted down at the AGM. Uh, But actually, when April came at the peak of the pandemic and Barclays, like many other companies, had to navigate choppy waters and really focus on uh, stabilising the company's performance, looking after its employees and handling the broader effects of COVID-19, even Branson recognised now wasn't the time to start making more vocal attacks and entered into a sort of truce, um, confirming he would abstain from voting on Staley's re-election. So that's not behaviour that you would typically associate with activists, but I think in, in that particular climate, it was perhaps not surprising. And I think the reason isn't just that uh, the world was coping with something that was so unprecedented, but also that ultimately any activist campaign is only successful if you bring on side the institutional shareholders. And of course, those institutions were very much focused on uh, the company having breathing space to steady the ship and to do the right thing by its employees. And uh, they may not pay dividends whilst they try to shore up the balance sheet for that period. And so it was unlikely that any 
uh, activist campaign that tried to undermine that was was going to get any traction amongst them and therefore any any success. And finally, let's not forget that a lot of activists who already had exposures to the company would have suffered, like many other investors, from the volatility and the decline in share prices around March and April. And so the combination of all these factors, I think, meant that they effectively decided to adopt a wait-and-see strategy pending the world coming out of the other side of the crisis. And so I suppose in terms of deal activity and and shareholder activity, um, that started to happen in the last quarter of 2020, didn't it, Claire? Yeah, exactly. So in the summer, in heading into the autumn, we were all facing the second wave of the pandemic. But actually, activism was also having a bit of a second wave of its own. So we saw activists picking up in some cases where they left off from August 2020. And actually, by the end of the year, the number of campaigns had then exceeded the levels we saw in 2019, making 2020 a new a new record year. So to take your Barclays example, in the summer, Ed Bramson picked up the pressure again on Barclays and began pushing for it to cut its trading division to boost profitability. And another example which gained momentum again was Third Point's calls for Prue to break up its US and Asian operations in the shorter term. And by August, Prue had then announced they would IPO the Jackson business. And you might remember that Third Point had initially taken its stake in February 2020, back before M&A-driven campaigns generally paused along with M&A more generally, as, as you said. So what caused the rebound? Well, I think some factors were growing confidence again among activists, um, particularly with M&A picking up and pent-up demand from the beginning of the pandemic. But that was also coupled with depressed share prices in the UK as a result of Brexit scepticism. So that was 2020, Filippo. What do you think about the year ahead? Well, it's a it's an interesting question, and it, it takes a brave person to make predictions in this climate, I think. But but let me try. I think I think there are probably two trends that we've seen um, and that I can imagine will will continue. The first is M&A activism. So uh, as we all saw, M&A dropped really sharply in March last year, but really rebounded and picked up more than people expected in September, October time. Perhaps unsurprisingly, given uh, given the weak pound in the UK and um, reduced share prices from all the volatility. So lots of opportunities for, for for investors, and in the context of M and A activity, obviously opportunities for shareholder activists to do what they do very well, which is take stakes in companies that are being bid for or that they think are about to be bid for, and try to demand extract a higher price from the bidder and make a quick profit as a result of that tactic. So something um, along those lines happened with Countrywide a property group who, like many others, suffered during the crisis and needed to raise money and struck a deal with um, private equity firm Alchemy to to take a big chunk of the company in in return for a cash injection at a valuation, um, which at the time the countrywide board was, was happy with, but which other shareholders, including new activist shareholders who came on the register for this reason, were not happy with. And they thought... Um, the company was plainly worth a higher price. And as a result of that agitation, eventually a, a, a bidder came along, Connell, uh, that tabled a public bid at a much at a much greater value, 
leading to a successful takeover, the resignation of the then CEO, and no doubt a tidy profit for the shareholder activists involved. And so I think given that prices are still volatile and the pound is still relatively low, this is a trend that's likely to continue as, as activists seek out pricing opportunities. The second trend is not transactional at all and actually relates to, to governance and management. Um, I think given the turbulent times that companies have been through, there's bound to be a lot of scrutiny on how boards behaved and whether they did the right thing for the company and for the wider stakeholders. So, you know, did they take a pay cut? Did they make redundancies? Did they manage their supply chains properly? How was their corporate governance process generally? Um, and did they remember to give due importance to um, other factors such as um, environmental or social and governance issues um, and not just sort of cash flow retention and, and generation? I think because those are arguments that institutional investors are very interested in, there will be a resurgence in uh, activist agitation um, for for board change, for other governors change, done with the benefit of hindsight, picking on targets that they feel haven't managed that aspect particularly well. Um, and of course, you know, focus on pay cuts and remuneration are, are topical and have been for a little while. So you know, in my mind, it's only natural that that's going to continue. Yeah, I completely agree with all of that. And actually, take the rank group, for example, so the owner of Mecca Bingo, they faced a major revolt by actually more than a third of shareholders who opposed changes in the remuneration policy, which meant that the criteria for awards could be amended to take account of the COVID disruption. And so effectively increasing the likelihood of a payout. And that was interesting because the opposition came despite the fact that the senior executives had already taken steep salary cuts in the first phase of the pandemic. And so I think we should expect that there will be continued scrutiny um, of all executive pay packages this year. And that obviously requires a pretty sensitive balance for companies. So, you know, towing the line between incentivizing management who are having to demonstrate significant leadership at the moment against the interests of workers and other key stakeholders. I think 2021 might also see continued agitation, as you say, from activists for changes to boards that they see as underperforming, and obviously they have the benefit of hindsight. Um, an example recently was Sevian's campaign to pressure Pearson, the education publisher, who also unsurprisingly hit hard by the pandemic, to appoint an external candidate to replace its outgoing CEO. And so there, CVM took a 5% stake in June of 2020, and then up that to 9% to try to push for a board seat for itself to enable it to oversee that succession process. And I, I think this sort of agitation won't just be restricted to shaping the identities of new CEO candidates, obviously, and actually also we'll see scrutiny of the existing directors and I think an increased emphasis on directors being held accountable for ESG failings. And so an example that quickly springs to mind is Mike Ashley, who I'm sure you'll all know is the chief executive of Fraser's Group, who came under fire recently for 
claims that employees at Sports Direct were asked to work while on furlough, for example. And that caused Perk, the proxy advisory firm, to then urge shareholders to vote against Ashley's reappointment as, as CEO. And so I think we can expect for, for that to continue. Yeah, so look, ESG failings and concerns are going to be top of the agenda for many institutional investors and I think also for activists. So we've all heard the likes of Schroeder's LNG BlackRock writing open letters to CEO of boards um, telling them they need to focus not just on profit but also on environmental, social and governance concerns. And let's not forget many of these um, investors are themselves under some pressure by their own shareholders to burnish their credentials in this space um, and be seen as investing in companies that really put these to the top of their agenda. So that, that is perhaps a trend that has been growing over the years and people aren't surprised by, but activists have also picked up on this and you see new activists enter into the space and you see activists that have advocated for change, uh, for example, TCI, who has advocated for, for climate change for some time, um, achieving more success. So TCI recently forced Aena, a large Spanish airport operator, to come out with a brand new climate plan and to submit it to an annual shareholder vote on a rolling basis. Others have tried to do the same. Climate Action 100, for example, forced Shell to set emission reduction targets. Um, and I think this is another trend that's likely to continue. And um, this is definitely one where activists can expect to get some traction with institutions because they increasingly have mandates that really go to supporting companies that are that are good in the space. Yeah, and I think that's going to be the case for the social and the governance factors too, especially, again, as companies start to emerge from the pandemic and there is increased scrutiny on the way in which boards and companies have acted to to treat the various stakeholders so furloughs pay cuts we, we've already mentioned and so i think what we'd say to corporates is that it's very important to make sure that management strategy is supported by a thoughtful corporate purpose which institutional investors can identify with and to keep the social and governance factors that we've mentioned in mind when building those ESG strategies and responses. But now that we've explored the trends from 2020 and the predictions for the future, I think it's worth us thinking about what companies can do to prepare if an activist attack arises. And so ultimately, I think starting point is the best defence to activism is strong company performance. And so of course, companies should be continually looking at how they are measuring up against their strategy and trying to preempt the weaknesses that an activist might try to attack. That would be my top starting point. What do you think, Felipe? Yeah, look, I think I think preempting is definitely key here. And I think you, you've touched on one of the ways that really does work effectively, which is um, try to have an outside in look at the company's performance um, and more generally spot areas that an activist might pick on as areas of vulnerabilities across the whole spectrum of matters we've been talking about. So not just financial performance, shareholder value metrics, but also um, how companies have fared in their ESG space, 
when they've been articulating their corporate purpose, has their strategy remained faithful to it? All of these are areas that could be attacked. Um, and an outside-in assessment will help companies prepare arguments to defend themselves if they do come under attack. The second point goes back to what we were saying earlier, which is that ultimately the companies will successfully defend against activists if they have the support of their institutions. Um, and therefore they should proactively and regularly engage with those institutions so that they can articulate their strategy properly. They are well understood um, and there isn't a risk that distance is created and that activists can drive a, a wedge between them because you really will need to count on their support when the time comes. So I think worth just ending on a few practical tips as well. So first and foremost, monitoring what's going on with the register. So disclosures above the key thresholds like 5% is an obvious one, but other warning signs might be, for example, a request by a shareholder for a copy of the register under Section 116 of the Companies Act, as that could suggest the shareholder is trying to rally support from others on the register. And secondly, alongside that monitoring, important to brush up on the toolkit that activists have at their disposal in these campaigns, such as the right to requisition shareholder meetings, as these tend to be the sorts of things that clients don't come across every day and parts of the Companies Act um, you may not have reviewed recently. Thirdly, I think tactics for responding to an activist, and in our experience now, more likely to be the case that refusing to engage in an activist is unlikely to be a successful tactic. And actually, early engagement is more likely to generate a successful outcome away from the public eye. So, for example, securing a relationship agreement with some strong non-disparagement undertakings. And finally, best tip practically is to manage an incoming activist like a defence to a takeover bid. So having a defence plan and engaging the full team of advisors early on will help to guarantee success. And so that brings us to the end of today's podcast. So thank you all for listening. I hope you found it useful. And if you'd like to discuss any of the points we've covered or to plan your strategy for responding to a campaign, as we just mentioned, then please feel free to contact me, Filippo, or your usual Slaughter May contact. Thank you very much. Bye for now. For more information on this topic or to hear our other podcasts, please visit www.slaughterandmay.com. You can also subscribe to the Slaughter and May podcast on iTunes or Google Play.